invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22, uh, a classically tricky text. Uh, I think Luther said there's not a more obscure text in the Bible as we... Um, Coming to some things here that uh, commentators have uh, put a lot of ink into trying to figure this out, but we're going to uh, wade our way through. I want you to keep your Bible open tonight, and um, I think it'll help as we as we just flow through the text together, because uh, it's got it's a great text. It has great great um, truth for us, great assurance for us. Uh, it's a very encouraging uh, text. Let's uh, give it our attention. I'm going to start reading to verse 13, so we get a bit of a sense of the flow, uh, 3.13, but we'll be looking at 18 through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. <clears throat> for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison... Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you for these inspired words. I thank you that they are words of wonderful truth. Help us to treasure them, to believe them, to be... Uh, strengthened and encouraged by them. Help us to see who we are in Christ Jesus uh, through these words tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we were reading through the text, you might have noted some of the things that caused people uh, consternation. Uh, what does it mean that Jesus went and preached to the, proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Uh, who are they? Where was the prison? Why were they there? What did he say? Um, how does baptism save us? How does that fit into all this? There is uh, all sorts of uh, issues at play here. And what I'd like to do is sort of um, uh, go at the text and unravel it by pulling the string of this idea of appealing to God for a good conscience. You have that in uh, verse 21, an appeal to God for good conscience. I, I think there's a thread there. Peter has already talked about having a good conscience in verse uh, 16. As we, as we live in the world, as we suffer in the world, um, Peter is appealing to us not to be afraid, uh, don't be troubled, but be prepared to make a defense 
having a good conscience. Uh, Peter remembers writing to a suffering church, a church that is beginning to come under persecution. And it is hard to be persecuted. It's hard to be uh, abused, to be misunderstood, to be falsely charged, to be unjustly punished. Uh, we, we have tastes of this in our own life where uh, we experience heartaches and hardships that we didn't deserve in that sense. We didn't do anything that was the cause of it. Well, the church is experiencing these sorts of trials simply because they're Christian. And when uh, you're in a time of suffering, and, and probably particularly in a time of persecution, that can be a time of tremendous doubt, a doubt on the one hand about the character of God. Is he really faithful? If my loved one has been put to death, if my family has been put into prison, if my children don't have a home or don't have food to eat, is God still faithful? Is he still kind? Does he really truly love me? Can I trust in him? Those are questions that are prone to ask in times of trial and trouble. Psalm 77, I believe, there's a, a great song in the old Psalter, um, to God will I direct my prayer and he will make my needs his care. But it talks about uh, the, the trials of this. The, the writer says, recalling days when faith was bright and songs of gladness filled my night. I pondered over my grievous woes and searching questioning arose Will God cast off and never more his favor to my soul restore? I asked in fear and bitterness, will God forsake me in distress? Shall I his promise faithless find? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he in anger hopelessly removed his love and grace from me? Ever asked those questions laying in bed three o'clock in the morning? Ever wondered if that was the case as you were going through a time of trial and suffering? It can be very difficult questions to face as we have doubts about the, where are we with God? And we can have doubts about ourselves. Did we do something to deserve this? Is God punishing us for something we did wrong? And, and it doesn't take long, if you're honest, to look into your life to find many reasons why that might be the case. Things that you've, uh, both sins of commission and sins of omission. And so you see, how do you find the courage, if, if these doubts and fears are troubling you, how do you find the courage to stand in the time of trial, in the time of suffering and persecution? Well, the answer is the precious gift of a pure conscience. Uh, Peter calls to us to lay hold of a good conscience. Well, what is a good conscience? H.L. Uh, Mencken, he was a famous writer for the uh, Baltimore Sun in the early um, to mid-1900s. Uh, He's not a believer, he's an atheist, but this is how he describes it. He says, conscience is the inner voice that warns us somebody may be looking. It's the mother-in-law who never leaves. Actually, it's, it's more serious than that, isn't it? A conscience is that inner voice that God has placed within us, that, that, the part of us that knows there is a moral law, the part of us that recognizes there is a God, He's written his law on our heart, on our conscience, and when it's working properly, and it doesn't always work properly, we can, we can sear our conscience. 
But when it's working properly, it testifies against us that we are in violation against the holy law of God. And that's generally the experience of, of, of fallen men. We have guilt and shame that attaches itself to us. Keller explains a shame conscience this way. Tim Keller says, a shame conscience is the secret conviction that you could not survive close inspection. There's an inner fear that if people really knew what you were like, if they really knew what you had done or were still doing, you would be rejected. You would be condemned. Your life can't bear close scrutiny, especially the scrutiny of God. You ever just have a sense of fear that, that you're going to be exposed and found out? Do you feel like you're a secret failure? Maybe on the outside, things appear to be fine, but inside you know your world is a mess. And you're stained and you're failing and your conscience is accusing you. What a precious thing a good conscience is. Because a good conscience is that quiet assurance that you don't have anything to hide. Isn't that an amazing thought? It's, it's the confidence that your life could bear deep scrutiny by others and by an all-seeing, all-holy God. A good conscience is, is, a, is, a, is a confidence in view of God. Peter's not talking about the delusion of someone who says, well, yeah, I'm a pretty good person compared to others around me. I, I feel quite confident. And then it's, it's this assurance that, that you are known and loved and approved by God. That you've nothing to hide and nothing to fear. You see, it's a profoundly freeing thing to have a pure conscience. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to fear being found out. You don't need to fear suffering because you know it's not God punishing you. You don't have to fear the threats of people even when they threaten you with death because you're not afraid to die. Death itself has no fear. What a wonderful way to stand with courage and endurance in times of suffering. But how do you get that conscience? How do you get that good conscience? Because due to the reality of sin, we see we cannot attain it in our own strength. And it doesn't mean people don't try. People will try in a variety of ways. On one hand, people will just sort of try to shut down the voice of the law. They'll try to say, uh, there is no God. There is no moral standard. Um, and so I, I don't need to worry about judgment. And on the other hand, people will try to... Say there is some moral standard, there is a God, and so they'll try to keep the law. So either by lawlessness or by law-keeping, people try to attain a good conscience. I remember listening to a, um, in a testimony of a, of a lady named Joe on Christianity Explored. I've, I've told you this before, but if, if you ever are just feeling down some rainy Thursday afternoon, um, and you get a chance, uh, go to Christianity Explored and look up their, their tab on testimonies. And just listen to testimonies of people who come to the Lord. I just find it to be incredibly encouraging. There's one, a lady named Joe. I grew up in a, uh, her father was an alcoholic. Mother uh, really stressed the importance of keeping up appearances, uh, looking like they had it all together, and, um, but no, no gospel at all. It was all about appearance. 
What would people think? What would people say? Well, as she grew up, she became interested in spirituality. Her uh, close friends studied uh, the various religions. She went to university to study the topic of spirituality. And she says that spirituality was her way of being a good person. Uh, You couldn't accuse her of being immoral because she was concerned about religious things. And she was interested in spiritual things. It, it, It gave her a sense of being a good person. Well, the problem with these man-made attempts is that they don't work. No matter how spiritual you might be, your conscience, if it's working properly, is going to tell you it's not enough. And then then when you actually do sin, and you will sin, uh, your conscience will be right there uh, telling you you're a fake and you're a fraud. You see, your conscience knows better. And that's where Peter brings us to the wonderful truth of the gospel. And here in these, in these few verses, he just lays it out in such a wonderful way. Let's, let's just follow the flow of it. He begins by laying the foundation. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Uh, he's talked about the suffering of Christ before already in this letter back in chapter 2. And there, he remember, he says that the suffering of Christ is an example for us to follow. It's the pattern that's been set. In, and because we belong to Jesus, he suffered, we suffer as well. That was chapter 2. Here in chapter 3, he's not speaking of Christ's suffering so much as an example, but as an encouragement. It's not just a path to follow. It's a rock to stand on. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that to the end of, in the accomplishing of bringing us to God. That's magnificent language. And that's the foundation of a clean conscience, that I am the sinner, I am the unrighteous one. But someone came and died once and once for all. The righteous one for me, the unrighteous one. The sinless one for me, the sinner. And in doing that, in that substitutionary, vicarious atonement, Jesus has brought me to God. It's a wonderful truth. But how does it help specifically when you're suffering? How does it help when you're being persecuted? Well, Peter immediately goes on to talk about Christ being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, there's two primary views. There's a variety of views, but I think the primary views would be um, who are these spirits One view is that the spirits in prison are those who perished under God's outpouring of wrath in the flood. They didn't didn't respond to the patience of God, and they were uh, punished and are now awaiting final judgment. Another view um, that I think has a little more credibility to it, it says that, holds that these are spirits, uh, these are fallen angels, A third of uh, the angelic host fell when Satan fell into sin. These are fallen angels who um, were placed in in in, in in bondage in prison of some sort when God judged the world in the days of Noah. The reasons I would say that is, in the Greek, the word spirit here, when it's used on its own without some qualification always refers to supernatural beings. And so that would be one sign here. Another sign is that the Jewish religion held that Satan and his demons had been imprisoned prior to the flood. In, in Peter's second letter, 
uh, Peter speaks of in chapter 2, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. And so he's linking the God uh, judging the angelic beings who fell into sin with the uh, God's judgment on the world in the days of Noah. Now, so, so what's the picture here? Well, again, this is, this is a lot of debate about this. But it seems like Peter is, 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 is suggesting that Jesus, uh, following his death on the cross, when he said, it is finished, went and proclaimed his victory to the forces of evil and proclaimed his lordship and dominion over the forces of darkness. Peter refers to that in the last part of this chapter, verse 22. Now he's gone into heaven and that is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Someone sent me a, um, and I'm getting off here, but someone sent me a, a uh, a note from a, a devotional that, that um, talks about when Jesus went to, uh, after, his, after his death, his victory is accomplished, and he, uh, and he went, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a view that holds that, that, that the saints of old were in the realm of, of Sheol, in the place, it's a place of darkness, though it wouldn't be a place of torment for them. But that when it, the Bible talks about Jesus leading captives in his train, it's referring to Old Testament saints. That Jesus went and as he proclaims his victory to the forces of darkness, he breaks the bars of Sheol and leads out Old Testament saints to, um, to paradise. Now, so that, again, that's gone beyond. But I, there's something going on here in the netherworld in that sense. Jesus proclaiming his victory to the spirits in prison. But why is Peter talking about this? Whatever he means, what, why is he talking about Noah and the flood and Jesus proclaiming? Well, he's, he's, Peter sees the world of that day as a, um, a prototype, in a sense, a picture beforehand of what the Christians are experiencing in their world. He's just saying... Are you, are you suffering for the cause of Christ in, in a wicked world? Well, do you remember Noah? Do you remember Noah, where, the man who was a righteous man in the middle of a wicked, wicked world and who had a call from God and who suffered the abuse and the scorn of the entire world? But you see, his suffering wasn't the end of the story. God's judgment fell on the, on the world, and the water that judged and destroyed the wicked lifted and delivered Noah and his family. It's a, it's a pattern that we see also later on in the story of Exodus. Once again, God's people are persecuted. Once again, God leads them through water, and the water that destroys Pharaoh and his hosts, it's the same water that delivers the Israelites and their children. And Peter is saying, we as Christians have experienced that same thing, but better. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, God's rescue of Noah, judgment and deliverance through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. So the flood in the Old Testament is a baptism where 
God judges the wicked and saves Noah, safely carrying the ark of God's promise. And again, you see that in Exodus, right? Another Old Testament baptism story. The Bible says that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. So the Israelites are saved through the flood of God's judgment, safely crossing over the Red Sea by the power of God's promises. Peter says, Christian, this is your story. This is what happened to you. Baptism saves you. It's the ark that carries you. It's the, it's the path through the sea of God's judgment and to your deliverance. It's an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how does baptism save us? There are some who teach that baptism saves you uh, by its own power. That it, it, it by itself washes you clean. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that, that baptism functionally saves you. You can't be lost eternally if you've been baptized. Well, that's, that's not what Peter's saying. It's an appeal to God for good conscience. This is where we've got to pay attention. There's some debate here as well. The NIV, if you have it, will say a pledge to God for a good conscience. I think the ESV is correct. An appeal to God. The issue is, in baptism, are we making a pledge to God that we will pursue a good conscience? Is that what we're doing in baptism? Or are we receiving a promise from God that we have a pure conscience? Well, I think it's the second. Noah was not saved by making a promise to God, but by believing a promise from God. You build this ark, I will save you. And Peter's drawing a direct parallel between Noah's experience and our experience. Baptism does not save us because we're making a promise, but because we're receiving a promise from God. But the strongest argument here is that Peter immediately talks about the resurrection of Jesus. So baptism, he says, saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith, uh, baptism is a sign, covenant sign, of union with Christ. So by faith, Again, this is, this is tricky theology, but if you, there's so much good stuff here. By faith in Jesus, Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection, is your ark of Noah. Jesus' death and resurrection is your path through the Red Sea of Judgment. As Jesus suffered the flood of divine wrath, as he is judged, bearing our sin, we are saved by his righteousness. And in that historic event, you see, we cross over the flood of wrath, the sea of judgment, and enter a brand new world. When Noah stepped out of the ark, he was not stepping into the old world he had left. He was stepping into a brand new creation. There's even almost a retelling of the creation story in Genesis chapter 9 and 10 and following. It's a fundamentally different world And he is greeted in that new world by what? By a promise from God, a covenant promise. God makes a covenant with Noah. And then God gives Noah a covenant sign, a rainbow. That wasn't Noah's sign. It's God's sign fixed to the covenant that God made. Exactly the same thing happens when Israel goes out of Egypt They're met on the other side of the Red Sea by a covenant-making God. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He makes covenant with them, and he gives them a sign, the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath was not Israel's sign to God. Exodus chapter 31, God says, this is my sign to you, that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The rest means that God is going to do the work of sanctification. And Peter says, We're, this is what's happened to us. When Jesus died bearing our sin, when he rose again for our justification, everyone who belongs to Jesus has left the ancient world, the old world, and we've walked into a whole new world. We, we've, we've entered into the reign of the grace of God. And we were met there with a new covenant. I will be a God to you. And we were given a new sign, the sign of baptism. The sign of baptism. If you've been baptized, see, it's God's sign that by faith in Jesus Christ, you are in an entire new world. It's the place where God's grace reigns. This is what makes Christianity so unique, friends. It's, every other religion tells you what you need to do to cleanse your conscience. Christianity is the good news that you can't cleanse your conscience. There's, it's just beyond your ability, but God has intervened on your behalf, and what you could not do for yourself, God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Christ died for sins once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous. And by virtue of your union then with him, you are in a new world. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's trial, just like there was for Noah, just like there was. But it's temporary, and one day you're going to enter into the whole reality of what God has for you. You're in a new world, and you have a confirmation, the sign of baptism. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, remember... Uh, reading this, I believe in his commentary on um, Romans, I'm not positive, but he talks about, talking. he says, I ask people, how are you doing in your relationship with God? And the person will say, uh, well, I'm trying. And, and Lloyd-Jones says, that person doesn't understand the first thing about Christianity. Why would a person say, well, I'm trying? And he says, well, it's, it's because they see themselves. They see how fickle they are in their faith. They see how weak they are, how prone they are to wander, and how, how, how they fail uh, from, uh, so often to, to be what they, what they know they should be. And, and so they're discouraged. And so they say, I'm trying to be a Christian. And Lloyd-Jones says they don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Because Christianity is not a method to help you gain the approval of God and quiet your conscience. It is a message which pronounces the approval of God if you will simply receive it and believe it. It's an announcement. It's not a method. It's not a strategy. Peter knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? This is the guy, remember, that was... Numero uno, he was the big shot, this disciple that if everyone else denies you, Lord, I will, I'll go down swinging. And then he ends up actually calling down curses on his head, just denying he ever knew Christ. All of his efforts to a good conscience by being the best, most devoted disciple, it just all collapses in absolute ruins. He's exposed as a wicked, just a fraud, a fake a desperate sinner who has no hope of saving himself. But then come the, comes the resurrection. Then comes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And who's the first disciple that Jesus appears to? It's Peter. And Peter experiences the gospel for the first time. Jesus knows exactly what he's done. Jesus watched him do it. 
And yet, Peter, for the first time, when he stands in full cognizance of his sin and his shame, is able to see Jesus and to receive Jesus in a brand new way as a Savior for sinners. He knows that he's forgiven. He knows that he's loved. He's pardoned. Old hymn writer says, Well may the great accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Is that your confidence tonight? Do you have a, a pure conscience tonight? Not because you're doing pretty well. Not because you've straightened out some things. Not because you have very good intentions. But do you have a pure conscience tonight because the gospel is proclaimed to you that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Once for all. Righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And that if you've been united to faith in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. You've crossed over the sea of God's judgment. And you've come into a brand new world, the world of God's grace. You see, it's something to be received, not accomplished. It's been accomplished in Jesus Christ. It's for you to receive it. And we need to receive it, you see, because if we live, continue with this shamed conscience, this sense that I'm not what I ought to be, is that true? It's absolutely true. And if other people really did know you, would they be shocked? Yeah, they probably would be. Because we don't know the depths of our own whoring heart. But the truth is, you see, we need, we need to lay hold of a pure conscience. A shamed conscience just rips away our joy. It robs us of our strength. And so many people live in the church with, with they, they say, I know the gospel is true. I, I know that Jesus saves sinners. I, I understand that. But I failed so often and so thoroughly. I'm so weak. And I, I, I intend to do better. I promise that I, I want to do better. But they just live there, you see, with the condemning voice of the guilty conscience. And it drowns out the voice of God's assurance and God's pardon and God's love. The, the gospel has to be embraced when you are you at your worst you. He died for you when you're doing the despicable thing, when you've done exactly the thing you said you would not do again, and there you are once again, in your anger, in the filth of your lust, in the awful swamp of your pride, in your filthy self-centeredness. Right there, you at your worst, when you failed again, that's when you see you appeal to God for a good conscience. Not cheap grace, but real grace. Real grace. The gospel is for me. The gospel is for you. Joe, in her testimony, says, I spent all my life worrying about appearances and just trying to cover up what I thought were the bad things from my past. And then I learned that Jesus was a real person and he could see me, and he knew me, he knew everything, and yet he loved me. And it was so different. It was such a relief. I can live my life openly. I'm not defensive all the time. I can be who I am, even though much of that is still not very good. But I'm loved. I'm still loved. Is that your testimony tonight? Are you able to believe that? Are you able to trust that? Are you willing to put down the pride that makes you want to do it yourself and lift yourself up by your own bootstraps? Are you willing to put aside the, the voice of just guilt and shame and the accuser 
and just trust that the gospel is for you. It's for you. At you at your very worst, you tonight. Friend, I, I just call you to believe it, to rest in it, to, to leave here tonight. If you have confessed your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with the confidence of a good conscience, God knows you, but you do not need to be ashamed. He's robed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he's never taking it away. Let's stand in this world confident, courageous, and let's stand calling them to the same Jesus. Amen. Father in heaven, tonight I thank you so much for the gospel. Lord, we're not very good people. We have secret sins that are just shameful. We have evident sins, at least evident to everyone else instead of us, maybe. Impatience, anger, pride. Lord, we're not very good people, and, and yet, in Jesus Christ, we can be righteous people, and by the power of the gospel, we can be growing people. Lord God, forgive us not just for our pride of, that leads us to sin, but forgive us for our pride that leads us to try to make it better. Forgive us for trusting or believing in the gospel in an external sense, but, but never actually taking it to our heart where it could change us while it humbles us and makes us servants of Christ. Lord, forgive us for being religious. Father, you know every heart in this room tonight. and Lord, I, I just believe there's hearts here who, who need to come to terms with the gospel, need to come to terms with Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would then give them the freedom to get on their knees, to confess their pride, their religious pride, and to receive in truth the wonderful reality of the gospel, that the Son of God suffered once for sin. The righteous for me, the unrighteous, to bring me to God. Lord, I, I pray that you'd give us the grace to believe that and to have the sense then that we don't need to be ashamed. We're not failures. We are Christ's. We are cleansed. We are loved forever. And Lord, in that confidence, may we love others, showing patience and kindness to our husband and our wife and our children, our neighbor, our co-worker, that we're people being changed from the inside out because the gospel is true. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.